Okay, today we get to look at the book of Job. We're going to tackle Job in 20 minutes or less. So seatbelts on, keep your hands in during the entire time of the ride. Uh, it's going to be a bit of a roller coaster. That's why we need Wednesday night, <laughs> so you can come and we can unpack some of the ideas. Over the summer, we're searching for wisdom because we need it. Do you agree? I mean, I think we've known that we've needed it for a long time, but it just seems more profoundly absent right now. Absent in our leadership, absent sometimes in our own lives and our own families. And so we need wisdom, and we need it desperately. So we are turning to the Old Testament wisdom literature in order to kind of glean some insight. So over the next five Sundays or so, we are looking at one piece of wisdom literature at a time with the hope that you'll go home and during the week find time to read that book. So go home this week and read Job. Uh, if you're a good reader, it's about two hours long. If you're a bit slower reader, it's about four hours long. If you're like me and you're a distracted reader, it's about 10 days. I timed it. So I'm not a very good reader. I get very easily distracted by shiny things. So uh, just plod through Job, and I hope to give you enough of a key to unlock it and give you some motivation to actually spend time in this profoundly ancient book. Of all the books of the Bible, the setting of Job is one of the most ancient. I mean, there's no, there's no standard of the law. There's no temple. There's no official ritual of worship. Job is the priest. Job is the prophet. Job is the leader of his family. Job is not even an Israelite. He's from us. Not us, but us. A place. And so it's very interesting as we get into it. It's a very raw kind of book. And it's a very ancient bit of material that we get to hold in our hands because of the providence of God. And so take some time and, and read it as you go through. But bear this in mind. It's poetic. That's incredibly important as you go through these books. Job is not like Leviticus. Leviticus is very instructive, very directive. It's also not like the Gospels, which is very narrative. It's an easy story to read. You get excited. But all the things that Jesus does, especially read through Mark, Job is different. It's poetry. And so you're looking for metaphor, and you're looking for all those things you look for in poems. Once you do that then you'll get into this idea of Job. So we're searching for wisdom. And wisdom, we need to know what we're looking for, right? And so wisdom at its most basic level is what? It's basically applied knowledge that leads to sound judgment. That's the most basic level. So when we send our kids out into the world, we say, make good choices. You know, go out there, make good choices. We're basically saying, Take all the knowledge that you have to this point in life and make good decisions with that knowledge. And that's the basis of wisdom, applying knowledge in such a way that we have sound judgment. But when we come to Scripture, we discover wisdom is much more than that. It's actually way more exciting and a little more elusive than that. That wisdom has this moral and spiritual component to it. We discover in the Bible that wisdom actually comes from God and is good. 
That's an important aspect of wisdom as we come to the Bible. We find in Proverbs that actually God made the world with wisdom and the world was good. That's a big part. And so we're invited to also make the world in God's image again, using that same wisdom and to do good in the world. So in order to fulfill our calling of what God has called us to do, to do good in the world, we need the same wisdom that God used to fabricate the world in the first place. And so it's there. It's there for the asking. God has woven it through all of creation. And even James says, if anyone lacks wisdom, what's he supposed to do? Ask. Ask God. Because wisdom ultimately comes from God. But I want to give another layer to wisdom. There's not only this spiritual and moral component, but there's also a dynamic component to wisdom. Wisdom isn't just a static thing. It's not like a a tool you pull out when you have to make a good decision. Wisdom is a dynamic thing. We need to live in such a way in the world that we are wise. It's a way of living in the world in everything we do. It's the path of righteousness that's talked through all throughout the Bible. And we're given choices every day, but we're given choices throughout the Bible. Choose life or death. Choose the narrow path or the broad path. Choose the path of righteousness. This is the way of wisdom. And so wisdom is a way of living in the world. Well, when we turn to Job, here's what we discover. Job teaches us that we need wisdom in our suffering. It's a way of living with our suffering in the world. Have you noticed some suffering in the world today? You notice some suffering in your life today? We need to live wisely with that suffering. So it's not just making the the good decisions that are exciting or challenging or, or making career path choices that we need wisdom for. We need wisdom in our suffering, and that's one of the things that Job teaches us. So the passage I'm about to read from Job chapter 28, um, it's hard to pick one passage for all of Job, but this is a very important one. And uh, it's where to find wisdom, because that's our question, right? Where do we find this wisdom? How do we attain it? And so in chapter 27, right before our passage, uh, Job gives kind of his final words to his friends. If you know the story at all, you know why I'm doing this, right? Job gives his final words to his friends. And then in chapter 29, the passage after what we're going to read, uh, Job gives his kind of final defense. I'm innocent, and here's why. And so Job puts on his final defense. The whole thing is like a courtroom drama that unfolds. But right in the middle, in chapter 28, is a kind of interlude. We're not quite sure who's speaking here. Is it God? No, I don't think so. Is it Job? Not quite yet. So it's this kind of interlude, maybe this kind of a a narrator, a commentator, looking at the story to this point. But what it does for us is it causes us to pause in our reading of Job. And it gives a summary of where we are, and it gives us a hint of where we're going. So the first part of the chapter, I'm not going to read, but it's fascinating. Uh, In this part of the chapter, uh, we're told that you and I are great at doing certain things, (laughs) like finding gold. We're really good at finding things that matter to us. We're good at finding gold and precious minerals and stuff that we can use to build our wealth. In fact, the, the writer goes on to say that we've devised all kinds of technologies to get into the core of the earth. We mine deep into the earth. 
We know how to find all kinds of precious things, and yet we can't seem to find wisdom. For all our technology, for all of our knowledge, for all of our ability, we can't find wisdom. Why not? Where does it come from? Let's find out. Job chapter 28, starting to read at verse 20. Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It is hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed even from the birds of the sky. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it, and he alone knows where it dwells. For he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Okay, so how do we get here in this part of the story of Job? I want to give a kind of summary because I don't want to assume that we all know the story. That's kind of a bad thing to do. I also don't want to assume um, that we all understand the story properly. Uh, sometimes we read stuff into the story from what we've gleaned over the years. So let me do a quick summary and I'll invite you to journey with me for a little bit. The book opens up introducing us to Job. I know his name looks like Job. Someone please explain to me why we say Job. I don't know. Job's job was, um, I don't know what it was actually. But Job, we're introduced to him as a blessed man. He's kind of like an ancient Doug Goble. That's basically what Job is. See, I said nice things about you, Doug. But he's a blessed man. He's got seven sons and he's got three daughters. He's got piles of cash. Well, not cash, but piles of sheep and all sorts of things that would constitute wealth back in the day. He is a blessed, blessed man. He's also a very righteous man. He's a devout man. He's a godly man. And then we're introduced to God. And we're introduced to God in kind of the heavenly command center. And this is where it gets a little strange. And this is where we have to be careful that we don't uh, establish all of our theology on how God operates and what heaven looks like and what the devil looks like based on this poetic portrayal of what's about to happen and this kind of uh, mind experiment that we're invited into as we go into Job. But we see God in the heavenly command center and God saying, look at Doug. I mean, look at Job. <laughs> that was an honest mistake. Look at Job. He is a righteous man. Isn't he great? I mean, look at him go. Go, Job, go. He's Job's biggest cheerleader, and he's very excited about Job. But then we're introduced to another figure, and the figure is the Satan. It's like the hockey player, right? It's not Satan. It's the Satan, right? And it's actually not Satan as we might understand him. So don't think, you know, pitchfork and, and ears and a long tail or something like that storming into the room to uh, oppose God in that sense. Thus, Satan is a word in Hebrew for the opposer or the accuser. Even King David is called the Satan sometimes as he opposes other people. So this is a character that opposes the statement that God just made. And he opposes it in such a way by saying, here's a challenge for you, God. 
I bet that if you took everything away from Job, he would no longer love you. That's the heart. That's the heart of the passage. That's the heart of the book, really, is do those who are blessed only love God because of their blessings? Ah, it's a challenge for us, isn't it? Do we only love God when times are good, when we're experiencing good things? And this is what the Satan says. I bet if he took everything away, he would curse you. He would not love you anymore. I remember when I was in high school, I had one of the absolute key things you need to have as a high school boy. What did I have? I had a car. It was a 1974 Ford Pinto. And no one hit me from behind, so it did not explode. Um, actually, it was a station wagon type. And so it was fantastic. You know how many people you can fit into one of those station wagons when the seats are down? Not safely, but we didn't care about safely, safety in the uh, early 80s. So uh, we crammed a whole bunch of people in there. And I made a lot of friends with my Ford Pinto. Um, people that wanted to go to parties and people that wanted to go to the beach and people that wanted to go skiing and people that wanted to go downtown. I had a girlfriend for a little while who uh, used me <laughs> to drive her around to soccer practice and to here and there and everywhere. And then I very accidentally put my car in Okanagan Lake. That's another story. <laughs> I actually drove by the spot, rode by the spot on my motorbike just uh, a few days ago, <laughs> reminiscing about the time I put my car under a bunch of log booms in Okanagan Lake. It was never the same after that for some reason. And a lot of my friends disappeared. What happened? It was a hard lesson, wasn't it? Suddenly this great friendship group went and found someone else that had a car. They were using me, weren't they? They were loving me because I benefited them. And I thought of that as I was reading Job this last couple of weeks, thinking about it. And that's the accusation. The accuser comes to God and says, look, Job only loves you because you give him gifts. Stop giving him gifts and he'll hate you. Ah, that's the challenge that we find here. So then we're introduced to some friends because Job loses everything, doesn't he? His seven sons and three daughters, they die tragically. I mean, can you imagine, right? Everything gets wiped out. He loses his status in society. He even loses his own health. This awful image of him scraping boils off his skin, like just horrible. He's in agony and pain emotionally and physically and spiritually, wondering what just hit me, right? Have you ever been there? Ever wondered what just hit me? I didn't see this coming. And while he's in agony and pain, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar come to keep him company. His three friends. My favorite is Bildad the Shuhite, the shortest man in the Bible. You'll get it when you think about it later. These three friends come to him, and they actually do a great thing to start. What do they do? They keep silent. Because sometimes that's all you can do with someone who's suffering, right? Sometimes it's the best thing you can do is just be with them till they're ready to talk or till they're asking for something, just to be present. It's hard to be present with people who are suffering and to be present in silence. And they don't stay silent for very long. Their purpose in this great poem and this great poetic retelling is to uncover the fundamental assumption that is happening theologically within that time, okay? And maybe even within our time. The assumption is this that if you are experiencing blessing, it's because you're doing things that please God. 
But if you experience hardship, it's because you have angered God and you've sinned. And that's what the three friends accused Job of. Like, Job, come on, face it. What have you done? You've done something, obviously, because things were going so well, and now you're suffering. You've lost your children. You've done something wrong. I think we still feel that way sometimes. When we lose a loved one or we see some tragic events unfold in our lives and we wonder, what have I done? What have I done to deserve this? I think even in the church, we, we say, you know, you must have sinned. Confess your sin to God. And I think there is a legitimate time when we suffer the consequences of our sin in real life. If, if I'm given to gluttony and then I have health concerns because of obesity, then yeah, my sin has led me to face some suffering and I have to own that and confess that, right? But there's a sense in which Job is innocent, but his friends are showing the operational assumption that's there theologically, that if you're blessed, then you're pleasing God, and if you're not blessed, then you must have sinned. So Job stands up, he makes his defense. Uh, At first, Job seems very just accepting of the facts. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord, right? That's early on in the story. As Job goes on, he gets a little bit more agitated. He actually says, I will no longer hold my tongue. I'm going to speak up and give you a piece of my mind, God. I think there's even permission to do that sometimes, to complain. David did it a lot. Lament is this kind of complaint. And Job does that in his suffering. He complains to God, but then he tries to put God on the stand. The only problem is God's not having any of it. (laughs) He's not willing to come and be tried before a human court. And so Job is trying to make his defense. And then there's another character, um, Elihu or Elihu. You can pronounce it any way you want. Just say it with confidence. Elihu. He comes and actually challenges Job and his friends. He challenges his friends for faulty theology, wrong thinking. But then he challenges Job and says, Job, you're not actually completely innocent. (laughs) I mean, face it. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He doesn't say that to him, but that's kind of the context, is that Job isn't actually completely innocent. That all of us, in fact, are wrapped up in a world where we experience the downfall of sin and all that happens because of it. And we are participants in that sin, if we're honest with ourselves. And so we do face this fallen world scenario. But then, after Elihu, comes God. Finally, toward the end of the book, God speaks. And what God does is very interesting. God doesn't give Job a direct answer. Typical of God, right? Have you ever asked God, just answer me, paint it in the sky, do do some magic with the Bible. You know, I'm going to open it to a verse. I'm going to read it now. Answer me, right? And uh, God doesn't work that way. And so God, what does he do? He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. It's actually kind of bizarre. He takes him to the oceans and he takes him to the mountains and he talks about Job doesn't even know when baby goats are born. I mean, that's a weird answer to give, kind of. And he takes him on this virtual tour of the universe. And after the tour, what does, what does Job do? He repents. He repents, and then he prays for his friends, and then he's restored. That's the story of Job. It's fascinating. So what do you learn? 
Well, we have to be careful as we approach the book of Job. Because Job is not an answer to the question, why is there suffering? We have to be careful. We often have that question, why is there suffering in the world? Job is never told why he is suffering. In fact, it wouldn't even comfort him if he was told. I mean, God doesn't just pull back the curtain and say, actually, there is this character called the Satan who came and challenged me. And uh, Sorry, Job, but that's the way it worked out. And Job's like, what? That's the answer? That's terrible, right? I wonder sometimes if God doesn't give us an answer because the answer would be way more confusing than if we just didn't know. So Job is not an answer to the question, why is there suffering? Instead, instead, this whole book is the question. The whole book is our collective wrestling with this question. Is God still good in the face of horrific suffering? Is God still good? That's the question. That's the question we're asking in our heart, I think. If we believe in God, is God still good even when we suffer? And the whole book of Job is permission to wrestle with that, to think through that, to talk about it together as we wrestle. Is God still good when we suffer? Two things that I want to address as we kind of move toward the end of this message. Um, two things I'd like us to learn. Lots we could learn from Job. But here's the first one, and it's going to be like super obvious. You're going to be thanks, Captain Obvious. But here it is. Bad things happen to good people. That, that's what Job tells us. Job was a good person. He was, in a sense, innocent. He was innocent of all the charges that were laid against him. He was certainly righteous. He was a God-fearing man. He was a godly man. And what we see here is just the reality. Bad things happen to good people. That's the reality. And so Job's suffering is not a punishment. And our suffering in that sense is not a, it's not a punishment. Also, Job's restoration is not a reward. We have to keep that in mind too, right? When we suffer, that's, that's not punishment. And when we, when we do good, it's not God saying, oh, you're doing good, I'm going to give you more. We have to be careful with that whole mentality. So his suffering is not a punishment. Remember when my dad had uh, pancreatic cancer, which took his life, he was just 75 years old, and he had about a year. And I remember toward the end, when the cancer really had hold of him, uh, that people would come to him and, and say, Bob, why you? Like, I just can't imagine, why is this happening to you? You're, you're such a good man. And why you? And my dad would say, why not me? Like, why do we think we're somehow special? Because we trust God and do good in the world. That we're somehow going to be preserved from the calamity that unfolds within our world. And sometimes my dad, he, his added suffering was having to console people who are coming to comfort him. You ever feel that as a person who's grieving? <laughs> the people just outpour their emotions so much and you're trying to console them as they've come to bring you comfort. It's exhausting sometimes. And that's one of the things that my dad found. Suffering is a universal experience and not a targeted punishment. That's something we have to be very careful of. It's grieved my heart from time to time over our recent history in the human population to see some preachers stand up and say, do you see that world event? It's because of this, it's being punished. See when the Twin Towers came down? It was all the gay people in the building. Preacher said that. That's from the devil. 
It's evil. It's not of God. We, we can't play God and say it's because of this or because of that. There is this sense, this element of this universal suffering that comes out in Job. And we see that right here. So bad things happen to good people. It drove King David crazy that good thing or bad things happen to good people. Sometimes he would even say, you know, why do the wicked prosper while the righteous, they kind of perish? And we feel that. And God doesn't give us a direct answer for it, but we're allowed to voice it to him. And we wrestle with it, don't we? Okay, so that's the first thing. But here's the second one, and you're not going to like this. Like, Job doesn't give nice answers. It doesn't go, ah, that's the reason. Okay, let's move on. That's not what Job does. So this is really tough. You ready for it? Job discovers this the hard way. God does not owe us an apology or an explanation. That's hard. God doesn't owe us an apology. Job's intention was to put God on the stand. God doesn't owe us an apology or an explanation. In fact, God is still just and good, even if we don't understand. That's the point of Job. That's why God took him on the virtual tour of the universe. God's response to Job is not an answer to the question why. Instead, what God does is reveal to Job the beauty and complexity of the universe. And when Job finally gets that insight into the complexity of the universe, he goes, ah, okay, I don't understand, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you in this, even though I don't understand. And in a sense, God is saying, you can't possibly have the wisdom to manage all of this. I want to share some of it with you, but the whole picture, it would be overwhelming. A number of years ago, there's a movie that came out, and this is not an endorsement for the movie, so don't come back at me and say, you recommended this movie, and it was not appropriate for my child. Uh, don't do that. But the movie is Bruce Almighty. Has some seen? Okay. So Jim Carrey, Morgan Freeman team up, Bruce Almighty. It's a ridiculous premise, but it has some moments that are worth watching. And in one of the moments, the idea is that uh, Jim Carrey's character, Bruce, he feels he can do a better job than what God is doing. Maybe we feel that too. If I was God, I would do this, right? And that's kind of the premise of the movie. And so God, played by Morgan Freeman, decides to give Bruce a chance. Bruce, I'm going to give you all of my power. And then God goes on holiday, right? And so now Bruce has all this power, Bruce Almighty. And he, is, he does ridiculous and completely inappropriate things with his power for a little while. But then he starts hearing what? He hears some voices in his head. And he can't tune them out. And they're becoming overwhelming. And he suddenly realized, it's all the prayers. People are asking for all kinds of things. And it's nonstop. And it goes on forever and ever. And he's, he says, I, I've got to devise a way to deal with all these prayers. He thinks of sticky notes at first. And that doesn't work, right? But it's the age of the internet. And so he decides to create a computer program. You've got prayer, right? And he collates and computes all the prayers that are coming in into this one program. It's a great, brilliant idea because he has all the power of God, and he does it. Wakes up in the morning, gets a fresh coffee. He's ready to set to work to answer the prayers, and he starts answering all this kind of prayer, all these prayers, answering, answering. And he's going as fast as he can, 
And finally, he says, this is impossible. I can't keep up. I just can't keep up. Comes up with a brilliant idea. Anybody remember what it was? He says yes to all the prayers. He just types in capital letters, Y-E-S, reply to all, send. Within two hours, the world is in chaos. One instance in the, in the city as they go down and there's riots and there's fires and there's all sorts of stuff happening. But, you know, all these people that prayed to win the lottery, they all won. And they won like $2 each or something, right? And, and so the idea, the whole idea is that God, Morgan Freeman, <laughs> knew that Bruce wouldn't be able to use the powers wisely. And it was meant to show Bruce that omnipotence requires wisdom, the wisdom of God. I mean, think about it. There's a snapshot. All the prayers in this room that we've been praying. Pray for rain. Well, today I'm going to stampede. I pray for sun. Whose prayer are you going to answer, God? We've got two hockey teams in this province. We won't get into that. <laughs> right? And so you can just catch a glimpse, just a glimpse of the wisdom that God uses not only to create the world, but to sustain the world. And when we get a perspective like that, we have to say, God, I trust you. I don't know. I don't know why I'm suffering right now. I don't know why these things are happening around our world. I don't know why Ukraine is in such a crisis right now. I don't know why these earthquakes have devastated people in Afghanistan. We can't get there to help them. I don't know why there's so many mass shootings in our neighbors to the south I don't know, God. I don't know. Our hearts cry out. And yet, in the end, we have to say, God, I, I trust you. And so the book's central theme is not actually God or Job's suffering. The book's central theme is the revelation of God's character to Job during his suffering. That's what we're meant to take away. God uses this suffering to instruct Job. And in the last chapter, Job summarizes it like this. Job replies to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them. And Job says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. I've heard of you, but in the midst of my suffering, now I've seen you. That's what happens in Job. This is the beginning of wisdom for Job. The fear of the Lord in the face of great suffering. This is what our passage said to us at the very end. Fear God and turn away from evil. That's our response in our heart to suffering. So when we find ourselves in Job-like suffering, what God wants from us is not actually complicated. It's difficult, but it's not complicated. We are to hold on to our relationship with him and not give up. When we suffer without knowing why, and when we persist in our relationship with God without any explanation or apology from him, we too will have God reveal himself to us in a new and fresh way, just like Job did. 